fly. And then and we didn't weren't really intending to make this into a movie. It was just him cajoling me into saying outrageous shit. So, <laughs> well, it worked. Yeah, let's let's go with that. Let's go with that. That's a good one. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit the domain is also pure information. Are we uh, conditioned here? Yes. in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. <laughs> the incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about... Radio, Radio Mysterioso. I was just laughing because for the first time, let me turn that up a little bit. For the first time um, doing this show uh, in a long time, I listened to what was being said at the beginning of there from uh, Plan 9, and it's eerily um, uh, appropriate to talk tonight. <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, and the comments from Jacques, and uh, you know, I heard Jacques' voice in there, and it, it fits. It certainly fits with where we're headed. Yeah, definitely. That was put in there very specifically quite a while ago. Him and uh, there's a uh, John Keel saying that doesn't that the extraterrestrial thing doesn't fit all this, and my friend late Mac Tony saying that uh, it appears to come from a domain of pure information, which he said I think something like ten years ago, which is I thought was very prescient at the time. So this this show I've been looking forward to for quite a while. I was surprised to get uh, both participants here to talk about this new film. Is this the first interview you've done for this film? This, th yeah. We did one. We, yeah, we did, we did one yesterday, uh, uh -huh. but it won't be coming out till the 12th, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I didn't know how these things are going to be staggered or whatever. I'll talk to you about it afterwards. For people that don't know who my guests are, which would be insanely strange, 
I will do uh, the uh, standard intro. And I pulled George's. I pulled, unfortunately, off the um, coast to coast site. <laughs> the, yeah, I have no idea which what that one says. It, it says nice things. Strangely, I keep wanting to say something about a cacophonous cavalcade of conversation, but I'll, I'll hold off on that. George, it's, it's better than pulling it off a Tinder profile, you know what I mean? <laughs> this is a swipe right show. George Knapp is a Nevada journalist who has been honored with the highest awards in broadcast journalism, including the Peabody Award twice, the DuPont Award from Columbia University, the Edward R. Murrow Award, and 25 regional Emmy Awards for investigative reporting, environmental reporting, and news writing. He's a longtime chief investigative reporter for KLAS-TV in Las Vegas, where he previously worked as a news anchor. He co-authored the best-selling book, Hunt for the Skinwalker. In 1989, his reports about Nevada's Area 51 military base were selected by UPI as the best individual achievement by a reporter. Since 2007, he's also been a weekend host of Coast to Coast AM. So now you know what it says on there, George. Okay. Well, it's almost right. Almost right. You can tell me. I'll go ahead and correct it. <laughs> 27 Emmys. I'm up to 27. I just got two more back in June. Oh, jeez. Jeremy Kenyon Lockyer-Corbell is an American contemporary artist and investigative filmmaker based in Los Angeles. He's, he documents extraordinary, sorry, ordinary individuals and their extraordinary beliefs. This release... Research has taken him to the worlds of nanotechnology, aerospace exploration, exotic propulsion systems, UFOs, the mystery of the Skinwalker Ranch, and what he calls the phenomenon, which I suppose would be UFOs and associated things. Uh, Corbell has documented, documented the surgical removal of alleged alien implants, and with access to NASA, he has filmed the analysis of anomalous metamaterials alleged to be physical evidence of extraterrestrial nanotechnology from UFO landing sites. Um, Jeremy has obtained uh, deathbed confessions from both from former CIA and government intelligent officials who claim to expose the truth about the UFO reality and its cover-up. Corbell's films reveal how ideas held by credible individuals can alter the way we experience reality and help us to reconsider the fabric of our own belief. Now, I must say, yesterday I watched the film. I was impressed by the new information of it, and actually because it's not, it's not just a reiteration of what's in Hunt for the Skinwalker, if people have read that. But it's, uh, there's a lot of new angles on this story. And the other thing that I notice is that these angles are updated to kind of the latest ideas and concepts that are moving through the paranormal and UFO fields right now. So when is this film re- going to be released? September 11th. Oh. Why did you pick that day? We didn't. Uh, it's a Tuesday. That's when iTunes launches is on Tuesdays. And they wanted to do it in the second week of September. So it ended up being September 11th. <laughs> I thought it was, there was some like you know conspiratorial. Oh, okay, but no, it just it just it no. Just we kind of we kind of chuckled about it when we realized it's nine eleven. Yeah. Oh yeah. People are people are going to jump to conclusions we, about that. Um, yeah, we uh, knew it would yeah. cause some stir. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to get that out of the way right away. How long have you two known each other? Because I, I remember hearing Jeremy for the first time on Coast when I was working, and he was, uh, I think, it was the Nano Man interview. And then we kind of exchanged messages back and forth afterwards because I knew where Pioneer Town was, and that's where you were at the time. But how long have you two known each other? I need to go back to when you threw my footage. Yeah, when did you start working on Lear? Well, I think I have actual footage of us talking in 2013, which would be six years ago. So I need to look and make sure on the dates, but but something like that. Yeah. How did you meet? I mean, did you... you... I stalked George. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) He did. He did stalk me. It was the most intimidating 
It was the most intimidating phone call. Yeah, so basically I was uh, interested in talking with John Lear because all roads seemed to lead, you know, from John Lear and beyond. Yeah, everything in ufology starting in the 80s really had him as this hub and this character of insanity. And so, you know, I wanted to see what that's about. I wanted to see if he was making everything up with Bob Lazar. And I started, you know, calling and getting, trying to get hold of John, and he just wouldn't respond to me. And it took, you know, a number of years, and finally he did. And I went over there, met him. And I couldn't make heads or tails of any of it. And I thought, well, you know, the person to talk with who's been dealing with these characters longer than anybody is George Knapp. But I had no way of, you know, contacting him. So I just started calling his news station and trying to get a hold of him. And finally, I think I bothered his producer enough that his producer called me and said, this is George Knapp's producer. I just want to let you know, I'm going to get you on the line with George. You're going to have a few minutes. You should be very, very specific. Yes. <laughs> I was like, okay. So that was uh, when I asked George, you know, I pleaded with him to help me make sense of some of what it was that I was learning. It's so weird because people kind of sometimes call me and said, I want to talk to, you know, whoever. I want to talk to uh, 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 Hal Putoff. Can you get me in touch with him? It's like, I don't know him. Call him up. You know, go to, go, go to his website. Do something. Do something like a normal person. But it's getting harder and harder to do that. Because there's so many people that just want to get in touch with you or want to be your friend on Facebook or whatever. So actually, yeah, I'm it's, pretty it's lucky a, you got through. It's a, it's a, I have a layers of uh, protective uh, um, folks around me who shield me from it. Only because I've been there for so long and so many people call and try to get through or just uh, show up at the station or at my house um, or stop me in restaurants and things of that sort. So... I get about 800 emails a day. I get 50 or 60 phone calls. I get hundreds of messages on Twitter. I get calls from people who want to meet uh, and want to have long, involved conversations on the phone. So I get if I'm going to get any work done, I, I really can't deal with that. So uh, I ask people to leave short messages, get to the point. Um, I'm not going to have a blind meeting. So. The, the, my producer and photographer and the folks at the station are are kind of used to dealing with UFO people. They can sort of smell them out. <laughs> and I think that's what Jeremy might have run into when he first tried to get a hold of me. But then eventually he he pierced the veil. He got through the various layers and, and got to talk to me. And it was clear he had a lot uh, on the ball and he was a sharp guy and, and was uh, working hard to try to understand it. So I ended up having him come up to my house, which... And he's, he's never left, uh, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but cl clearly you need to up your security if I can get through. Since we are on the subject of how Jeremy got to you, we talked about this a little bit, but what's what do you see as your role in the paranormal and UFO field? Because you told me a lot of people make up stories about it, who you are and what you do because of who you know and what you talk about. What are some of the biggest delusions that people have about you that we can get out of the way right here? Well, I don't work for the CIA. Uh, I'm not an alien. Um, I'm not in league with Bob Bigelow or Tom DeLong or the DIA. I'm not working with the government as some kind of false flag operation. Um, I don't believe that disclosure is underway. Um, I, I just got lucky. I mean, I, some of it's luck and some of it's perseverance and some of it is just a factor of geography because as I told you, Greg, when, when we saw each other the last time, um, I, you know, I find myself now at this stage after 30 years of dealing with these topics, I find myself right in the middle of the biggest stories um, that are that are underway, that are unfolding. 
And a lot of it has to deal with uh, the people that I got to know along the way and, and relationships that I have cultivated and, and trust that has built up over the years uh, because I keep my word. You know, Bob Bigelow is the key example. 1989, we come out with the stories about Bob Lazar and, and we did it as a much broader history of UFOs in America that it was, uh, um, you know, UFOs, the best evidence. So I tried to do a really broad treatment of the topic. I immersed myself in it and learned it and uh, it hit the airwaves and it was it changed my life and changed the lives of everybody who was involved with that story, changed the trajectory of Area 51 itself. I mean, Mm -hmm. it went from obscurity to something that was known all over the world. And after those stories aired, I get a call from this guy. I'd never heard of him before, Bob Bigelow, who was a wealthy guy who wanted to support UFO-type research. How could he help? I said, well, you know, I, I work for a TV station. I can't accept any outside help, but I'll keep you in mind. Uh, little did I know that a couple months later, he had reached out to Lazar. They had formed a relationship that didn't last too long. And then uh, Bob, who had always had an interest in UFOs, really jumped into the deep end and started supporting research for people like Linda Howe and Stan Friedman and and spending more and more of his own money trying to get some answers because he he had the resources to spend and he he had the curiosity. So that relationship, that friendship that uh, developed that long time ago uh, puts me in a really good spot because of all the things that have happened since. I mean, who would know that Bob would create the National Institute for Discovery Science a few years later in the in the mid 90s and that he would uh, put together a world class science advisory board featuring just giants of our time. I mean, outside of the world of UFOs and paranormal research, these names might not be well known, but these guys are amazing people and have been willing to put their lives and their reputations and their time and their fortunes and their careers on the line to try to get to the bottom of this. A lot of that has been spent on the inside. They've worked for different three-letter agencies. A lot of them have been contractors uh, who have worked for those same agencies. Along the way, they've caught glimpses about what's really going on. And then as private citizens, they've tried to get to the bottom of it. They've tried to help help uh, Bigelow pierce the veil of secrecy. And they've got nothing but shit about it ever since. Mm-hmm. All the crazy stories that have popped up about the NIDS guys and who they're working for and about Mr. Bigelow himself. I mean, he got earned his fortune from the tea industry. He owns casinos. He's a drug dealer. He's He works for the CIA. All kinds of crazy stuff which we address in the film, by the way. Right. And and he's all he's tried to do is get to the bottom of it and figure this stuff out. He spent more money than any person in the history of the world on UFO and paranormal research, more than any single individual, as far as I know, and has nothing but grief to show for it. And the same guys who were part of that NIDS organization, Colin Kelleher being one, are yep. some of the same names that are now working with Tom DeLonge. And because of those, the crossover there, people assume that Tom is the new Bigelow, that Tom inherited the Bigelow organization, that Bigelow has bequeathed uh, the, you know, the secret files and all the inside info to Tom. And, and uh, it's just not the case. The fact is, there are only so many people like Hal Putoff and Kit Green and John Alexander and Edgar Mitchell to go around. Edgar Mitchell, of course, is not working with TTSA. He's gone, but... Those other guys, Colm Kelleher, Eric Davis, they are uh, working as consultants or at least in consultation with TTSA because there's only so many people at their level of expertise with their credentials who've worked inside government and who have an interest in this and are willing to talk about it. 
Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they would naturally gravitate from one organization that no longer exists to another that's trying to accomplish the same thing. I'm sorry, I got off on a tangent there, but that's, that's okay. one of the things that sort of gets, gets under my skin. This is part of the reason why I wanted to have you on uh, along with Jeremy, just to clear up some of this stuff from your point of view and to kind of put to rest some of the things that pe- people talk about because they do listen to this show. I've, I've got some audience. Yeah. I don't have I don't well, everybody listening to this show, but people that are, are are thoughtful and 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 are willing to listen will will hear your words. So, well, I got to meet those guys. Uh, the NIDS uh, board would have meetings. I didn't get to sit in on all of them, but I got to sit in on some of them. I got to make presentations uh, at, at for a time about the Russian stuff. I got to interact with people like John Alexander and Colum and and Eric and other staff members. Uh, interact with people whose names have not been made public for reasons that are pretty obvious and and i got to be a fly on the wall and as long as i i agreed to i never had to sign a confidentiality agreement but as long as i agreed to not spill the beans as soon as i left that place and before i do a story you know to check and make sure that i'm not uh ending somebody's career or something like that they would allow me to hear this stuff and allow me to learn it mm-hmm. and uh and it's it's helped in valuable in valuable ways even if it was stuff that I could not report, much of it is stuff that has still not been reported, but it allowed me to understand what was going on in the world of ufology. I could tell who's completely full of shit, who's making stuff up, what's really going on, who's yeah. pulling whose strings, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Even without doing the stories, the things that I learned there were, uh, you know, just helped me in so many ways. And now a lot of those stories are sort of come into fruition. The work that uh, Bigelow and others have done, you know, we've learned a heck of a lot in the last nine months about programs that were underway. That same time period, uh, uh, the Harry Reid thing happened. And, uh, you know, Harry Reid and I, as I told you, Greg, and, and Jeremy has known for a long time, um, he was the first person I told uh, about Lazar outside of our newsroom. He was a member of Congress. He wasn't in the U.S. Senate, uh, uh, I think, when I the first time I was covering his race races. And then in 1989, uh, I jumped in a limo with him on the way to the airport. Uh, he was flying back to D.C. and I told him the Lazar story. He didn't kick me out of his car. He said <laughs> he was interested. And, and from that point on, uh, we maintained a conversation about this. Now, I've still done stories that were pretty rough on Harry Reid. I've done stories that are favorable, unfavorable. I've tried to be down the middle. This was separate. We kept it separate. And in the years since then, and all these years, when I go to Washington, D.C. to interview him about this or that, some big legislation or whatever was going on, he and I would go off to the side and have a conversation about UFOs. And it would drive his staff crazy. Uh, but uh, he really did and does have an abiding interest in it. In the mid-90s after NIDS uh, was formed, uh, Reed had represented Bigelow earlier in when they were both young men, but he hadn't maintained the relationship. So I told him about NIDS. He said, you think I could get invited to a meeting? And he did. And he was hooked all over again. So he has helped, I think, uh, you know, maintained uh, an open line of communication with that with Mr. Bigelow. Um, there was another member of the U.S. Senate, by the way, who was on the NIDS board. And um, and that that really has paid off when when years later, 2007, Reed is the guy who sponsors uh, um, the effort to get some money to study UFOs in a serious way, a program that uh, we now know about. Jeremy, how did you guys decide to make a film about uh, Skinwalker, about George's and Colm's book? Because when you beginning of the film, you actually see that there's, I think George said there was something like 30 or 40 
hours that he had shot in the late 90s of um, when Nids was there. Is that because he just wasn't able to release it at the time, or what was it? Yeah, I mean, George always told me he wanted to make a documentary. That's why he was filming. That's what he was doing. Uh, at the time, it was something that uh, Robert Bigelow decided he didn't want, you know, to, to put that kind of attention on the ranch. So, so George and he decided that they, you know, George could do a book and that that's what he ended up putting out. But it's not a single picture in the book. So right. obviously this is something George wanted. And it's something that, of course, I wanted, you know, access to that information through George and then telling that story, not just of the ranch, but also George's story. The story of what he endured for, you know, over two decades to bring this story forward. So that was interesting to me from a point of view of I'm sure everybody would be interested in that. And, yeah, there were 30 or 40 hours of, you know, footage that the public had never seen before. Think about how much footage you have seen before my film from inside the ranch. None. Right, you see right, none. And right. so it was a huge, huge opportunity. But, you know, I don't think George was having any of it. Uh, until there was a break, until there was an opportunity. And that opportunity, I, I believe George will agree, was when uh, Robert Bigelow sold the ranch to a new owner. And that kind of opened, luckily opened the floodgates. What's interesting about that was, uh, I thought interesting in the film, was that the new owner or somebody in, in, the, in the course of the film said that the, one of the conditions of selling the ranch was that Bigelow and whoever he deemed could have uh, full access. Is that true? Uh, I think that's a little bit a, a little bit skewed. Uh, one of the you know perks of it being sold, and one of the relationships that was established because George has established a relationship a long time ago, was that we had uh, you know continued access to the ranch. That was not a condition of sale. That we, we really lucked out on that. I oh, think okay. I intimated in the film. I think I intimated in the film. You know, Robert Bigelow didn't just want to sell the ranch to anybody. It appeared to me that the person who got the ranch was be, you know, partially because the person wanted to continue the study of the ranch. You know, so even though I think Robert Bigelow was done with it for himself, you know, I think you spent a lot of time with it, you'll probably sell to somebody who wants to continue the research. That's true. Uh, I think Bob had wanted to sell the ranch for well over a year, maybe a year and a half uh, before he finally found the right buyer. And, you know, there were people who came around kicking the tires but I think he's a man with a conscience. He didn't want to sell that ranch as a real estate deal or to somebody who wanted to just raise cattle on it. That would have been uh, a terrible thing to do without letting them know what was going on. Right. He wanted it to be somebody who hopefully would had the resources to reinvigorate uh, the, the research, if possible, or at least be a, a good custodian of the property and keep it from falling into the wrong hands or, or hurting people. I think the, the story was, at least the public story, is that the activity died down, and that's why Bigelow sold the property. But it seems like there are other factors in, involved there in, in the sale, as you say. Since they've been there, I guess more activity is, has ramped up, apparently. Well, I'll, I'll put it this way. I mean, the, the story about – Jeremy, you want to jump into that? Uh, yeah, go ahead. I mean, I think I know where you're going with this. But, yeah, I mean, the activity well, has in, increased again. But go ahead. Yeah, I can tell them the story. I mean, it's not a it's not a false scenario that the activity died down. It, that did happen. I mean, the, the NIDS guys were on the scene there for seven really kind of intense years. Uh, but after 98, 99, it really took a nosedive. The uh, whatever that intelligence is, it went underground. It didn't want to be hunted. The whole dynamic of the situation changed. I mean, while that team was there, they were they were trying to establish communication. They were not only. They were first trying to get their heads around what it could be, 
crossing things off the list, prosaic kind of explanations. Like, was it is the place infested with psychedelic mushrooms or something? Is it the hallucinations? Is there some other kind of explanation, a gravity anomaly, whatever? They looked for other possible reasons beyond paranormal ETs, whatever that scenario might be, and um, and they didn't find it. So they were trying to figure it out, and they, uh, you know, they they couldn't really uh, find a, a good explanation, and they tried to communicate with it, and they felt that they were close to a breakthrough at some point, and then this thing really turned on them, and it turned on them in an ugly way uh, with a couple of incidents that we uh, discuss in the film, and then it, it disappeared. I mean, there was still activity in the Uinta Basin. You'd see little tiny glimpses on the ranch property itself but not enough to justify having that kind of a presence because it was expensive. So it went into sort of a caretaker status. Bob had uh, people living on the property. They're still there. And then he, uh, because of the book coming out and the notoriety that had popped up, there be, there were security issues that came about. Uh, he started having a lot, there were a lot of intrusions and vandalism and trespassing. People would come out and get drunk and throw bottles around. They'd sneak up at the house in the middle of the night, take pictures through the windows, scare the hell out of people. Um, you know, they were causing problems. In addition, putting themselves at risk because there is a genuine interactive quality to this, to the property. And, and so, you know, he, I think he eventually wanted to, to let it go because there wasn't enough activity to justify having a study, which is why NIDS went away. So he really did want somebody uh, to come along who would be willing to reinvigorate it. And the fact is, um, when you have new people on the property, that was always one of the telltale things that would generate a round of activity. And in fact, it's happened. The uh, Since the new owner has been there, it just sort of reinvigorated all the weird stuff that had been happening before. Well, not all the weird stuff, because nothing ever happens quite the same uh, a second time. But uh, a lot of the same sorts of things have happened all over again. Yeah, you you said I think in in uh, maybe so much not so much in the book but in the film it was really emphasized that the arrival of new people or a stranger or even somebody that was kind of uh, um, viciously uh, uh, s- uh, skeptical about it making noises and here's a good one I really like digging into the ground. Uh, what was yeah, up with yeah, digging think, into the ground? I mean, why why did they ever come up with an idea? Do you guys have any ideas about why that was one of the triggering factors in in having things happen at the ranch? Jeremy, you want to do that? Well, I just I think the important thing is it's really fun to select who's going to be bait for any particular trip. I think there's <laughs> a lot of joy taken in that. I think George was put out as bait one yeah, he, time by the Nids guys. He talked about he really it in the enjoyed. Film, yeah. Yeah, he really enjoyed dangling me on the hook there for whatever's going on. And then, of course, we love throwing, you know, Robbie out on, on the on the hook and seeing what would happen with Robbie Williams. So, um, you know, look, I, I also just want to say that it may have slowed down in the perception of the people trying to study the phenomenon on the ranch during those years. But the activity in the Uinta Basin did not. It is ever present and it's consistent and it is uh, prolific, you know, this the, the engaging the phenomenon. So, so that tells you something. You know, what that tells you is that the phenomenon is selective, that it appears to either not want to be watched so it can do its thing, but more than not, it seems like it enjoys the element of surprise, that, it, that it's a trickster, that whatever's going on, like even the mutilations, that they, there's an enjoyment of some sort in, it, in initiating, you know, being in charge, being in control. And I think that's more it than anything. You know, the, the ranch is and was used as a living laboratory 
to study what is going on in the Uinta Basin at large. And I think that's something that people need to know. They're not going to, by dipping their toe over the property line at the ranch, they're not going to experience the paranormal. I think that the entire area is saturated with the experiences of the phenomenon. I think that's important to say. Right. Let me add something about the, the ground and the earth. Yeah, please. Um, when, when the family uh, the, that we call the Gormans uh, first bought the property, they thought it was odd that the, the, the ranch had been vacant for about seven years. They thought it was odd that there was a, a condition in the deed that any digging into the ground, they had to let the previous owners know about it. And uh, the, the rancher, Tom Gorman, had told Nids and Colum that seemed really kind of odd. We just thought these were crazy old people and we went along with it. But soon they understood what was going on because when they would get out heavy equipment and move dirt around, when they dig into the ground with the, to, for fence posts and things of that sort, it tended to generate activity. At night, they'd be out on the property and walking around, and it would sound like there was an underground railroad or a steel mill or something under their feet. It would, you could, the ground would shake. Sometimes the sound, metallic sort of sounds, would come out of Skinwalker Ridge. Um, so they, they had a sense that there was something underground. The previous owners had sort of warned them about it. And then in their own experience, whenever they did dig into the ground, it seemed to generate activity. So for my first visit there, I mean, the column and, and the other NIDS guys had uh, figured that maybe my inherent weirdness quotient might <laughs> stimulate some activity because it had been quiet for a long time. So we went there. We did all the things that, that would, would have generated uh, interest from whatever it is. And we made a lot of noise. We built a fire out on the property and then we got out the earth mover and moved a bunch of earth around and then they put me on that chair out there to see if somebody would come and get me and nothing did other than mosquitoes and we did some of the same thing with jeremy for his visit to see if we'd come get him we're both still around but the idea that there is something underground there is not a new idea it's one if you talk to the utes uh, the navajo and other southwestern tribes maybe it's beyond the southwest they believe they entered the world underground through the ground. Yes, uh, that they came up from the second world into this world mm-hmm. through the earth, and, and uh, they to this day. The last time that Jeremy and I were in the basin talking to our new friends who are youth tribal members, they confided to us that they feel that what goes on on the ranch, in addition to other kinds of paranormal stuff, that that is a place where the ancestors, the spirits of their ancestors, entered this world. So uh, it's a oh. it's called a sipapu. That oh. is, that's the that's the opening. In fact, if you go to a, into a kiva, there is there is always a um, ceremonial one, a hole in the floor, um, to to represent that to pre- represent that emergence. So um, oh. the, another thing this brings to mind is uh, there's a book, old book that's uh, very near and dear to my heart called. Uh, now I can't think of the name of it. It's by Jim Brandon. What he proposes in in this book is that um, a lot of paranormal activity occurs in places where there is underground water, where there are mines, caves, and things like that. They seem to occur where there's uh, uh, spaces underground. And um, I was wondering if anybody found out ever anybody ever tried to do a survey and see if there were any underground water caves, anything like that, old mines, anything like that under the property. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that they have done that. I don't remember it offhand. I know that there was uh, a proposal for a while toward the end of the, the NIDS period or the, uh, the the really active years, the 90s, um, when they were talking about getting ground-penetrating radar 
and focusing on a particular part of the ranch that had been identified by some really uh, well-known remote viewers who said, who had sort of singled that out as there's something underground there that's bad and uh, that's where you should look at it. But that never happened. Um, There was so little activity that I think Mr. Bigelow probably made a decision along the way to cut his losses because he'd spent a heck of a lot of money on it. Mm -hmm. The name of the book is Rebirth of Pan. It was published in the late, late 80s, I believe. I had a question from uh, one of my friends about uh, people that were not really bait, but just people working there. Were there any, uh, during NIDS or any time after, has anybody ever been seriously injured physically? Um, Jeremy, you want to talk about that, or uh, I can... No, I think, I think you should, yeah. Uh, I think you should. really. I mean, I, I don't think there really have been any significant physical injuries to people. A lot of bad things have happened to animals, you know, cattle and horses and dogs and cats. And there have been psychological uh, harms to people involved. Uh, and I know what you're talking about, Greg. I've read some of the articles that maybe people were used as bait without their knowledge, like the, the security guys who'd been placed out there right. um, to see something would come and get them. Look, any security guy who went to work there knew what was up. It was no mystery by that, that point. Uh, by the time they started having security at the ranch, the book was already out and the word was out. And the guys who were sent there from Bigelow Aerospace, if they didn't want to go, they didn't have to go. They all knew about it. They all talked about it amongst themselves, especially after the first few groups of them would go to the property, many of whom saw stuff and then came back and told their colleagues back at the aerospace plant. So people knew what was up. I think probably the, the first uh, first people to live on the property are the ones who were an unknowing experiment. They had no idea what was going on. The mm-hmm. Gorman family had no idea when they bought that property what was going on, but they quickly figured it out. No humans that I know of have been harmed physically other than small little, little injuries, the kind of things, uh, scars and marks that are sometimes associated with, um, with abduction experiences. It's a propagated it's a propagated story even by you know researchers in the area because it's something that really gets people's attentions. But George is shooting you straight with it. You know you can blame a lot of things on the ranch. You can surely do that. But as far as you know, validated, verified, you know, like we do have verified close encounter UAP, uh, you know, radiation effects. We have those well, uh, you know, targeted and researched, and that's something that's in military documents. That's a known phenomenon. We can't draw direct correlation to injuries at the ranch with humans at this point publicly in any way. So it, it's funny. By the way, there's a story go, that go ahead. There's a story that's floated around for a number of years about uh, there was a big shootout on the property that the aliens and Bigelow security team had a big shootout and two of the security guys of Bigelow's employees were killed. This sounds like Dulce. Yeah, I know. If somebody has borrowed the Dulce story and 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 placed it over top Skinwalker Ranch, it never happened. Um, I mean, it would be illegal to hide that. It would be Bob Bigelow would put everything he owns at risk to hide up the deaths of two of his employees killed by aliens. And the the last part of the story that the battle was over the alien technology, then Bigelow made off with a flying saucer after his guys won the fight is equally ridiculous. I've never heard that one. There's a first for this for me anyway. That that's crazy. That's lifted almost whole cloth from the Dulcie stories. I'll send it to you. Okay, I'd love to see that one. You just mentioned George. They put you out as bait. You know, sitting in this chair after all this stuff had been done. You too, Jeremy. 
and then uh, some people seem to have these th- experiences attracted to them. They see it, they they experience it. It's um, not normal to them, but it seems to be something that is attracted to some people, not others. And did the did NIDS or anybody after that ever figure out any mechanism for that? Is it psychological? Is it genetic? What is it? Jeremy, why don't you take first stab at that? Yeah, just, uh, you know, I, it, it is my understanding people have made an assortment of links, none of which can be, you know, quantified or verified. It, it appears that maybe security people that come there seem to have a little bit more of an interaction. We can theorize that's because of their presence and their job and their mindset. Um, you know, I am paranormally retarded. I, I've never, <laughs> I've never seen anything quite, you know, that really shocked me. Uh, although, you know, I have witnessed other people experience and see things that, you know, their reactions are real. So, uh, in my understanding, we don't have a clear knowledge of what it is that targets an individual. Uh, you know, you've a- I've asked people and, you know, does it matter if, you know, you, what your mind state is, this sort of thing? Nobody really knows. I'll tell you this, Greg, is that uh, most of the people who've spent a lot of time on the ranch, some of the people who've spent only a little bit of time on the ranch have seen weird stuff. I have not. I- I've been there. I've been going there since 2000. And I've never seen other than uh, the trip that Jeremy and I took with some weird lights in the middle homestead that we can't explain. That'd be about it. But I. Nothing, nothing jumped out of the bushes to get me. Um, uh, what, what the, the, there is a common characteristic. It, it, I think it has to do with attitude. Uh, some of the worst things that have happened, and we haven't made uh, them public, happen to people who are packing guns, commando types, secret agent types, uh, gung-ho military veterans who come there um, sort of on the defensive and they're ready to take on whatever it is. Those people seem to, to have the most trouble. And the, the, uh, the, the term that's emerged is hitchhiker, mm-hmm. is that whatever is there attaches itself to people like that. So even if they don't have an experience on the ranch, uh, they have one when they get home, or more likely, it affects people's family. It spreads kind of like a virus. Uh, and, and this can go on for years and years after uh, even a single visit to the property. Um, and it's pretty spooky. It, it's and it's real, you know. The, so um, that that's the only thing for sure that we can say. I know that Jeremy has had the same reaction as I've had. I, I was there for a lot of years, hoping that I would see something. I would try to invoke uh, something. I brought things home from the ranch to see if it would follow me. Um, I'm not going to say if it. I, I haven't seen it there, and I haven't seen it here. But I'm not going to say that no one else has been affected. However. Um, you know, it, it, um, it's, it is definitely followed other people and the, the consequences have been very significant for them and for their families. Can you describe any of them? You want to do that, Jeremy? You want me to? No, you should, you should definitely do it. Well, uh, for example, there was a, there was an encounter and we, we haven't covered it in this film. Um, but there was something that happened during the bass, uh, period when, the when there was a, you know, there was the NIDS period that was funded by Bob Bigelow, the study of the ranch. And then there was another study that went on for a couple of years, funded by the U.S. government, by the Department, of, uh, by the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency. And they had uh, operatives on the property uh, at different times in 08 and 09. And during those times, by the way, I was not there on the ranch. I, I was not uh, a part of that uh, process. I just happened to know about it. 
uh, as it was explained to me by multiple persons involved, there were three uh, of these badass um, badass uh, operatives, employees who had seen a lot of time in combat, who had done a lot of perilous stuff for the U.S. government, who encountered something on the ranch that made it very clear that they were not welcome. And um, and they they froze. Literally, they were frozen. And then they left and it followed them. Uh, and uh, two of the three, I can tell you what happened to them. It's like poltergeist activity at their homes. Uh, the one person walks into the place where um, the person lives and things start flying off the walls. Wine bottles come off the shelves, break on the walls across the room. Uh, specters and and um, and humanoid figures uh, shadow people in the house to the point where that uh, operative's roommates moved out. The other person um, was married, had kids. A wolf showed up at their home. This is not just a a wolf that you you see in a zoo. This is a wolf that was very much like what was seen on the ranch, except for it stood on two legs. It's out there in their front yard, uh, leaning on a tree, standing on two legs, and scared the hell out of them. Um, And the activity for at least two of those three people who had that experience on the ranch continued for a couple of years. Oh. And it ju- did it just fade away or did they do something about it or get a, somebody to come out and do a, a <laughs> you know, a banishing or, a, you know, a exorcism or something? I don't, or I don't know. You don't know. Okay. Yeah. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I, I just, my information only goes so far and the last I heard it was still underway, but that was a couple of years ago. What was the DIA trying to hmm. find out out there? Well, yeah, I mean, um, I, you know, I, I think George should, should take this one too. Yeah. Go, no, I think it's important. Yeah. Well, um, we don't want to uh, overstate the case, but after the book came out, it was read by a lot of people in uh, powerful positions, including at DIA. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who had been on the inside, who had an interest in UFOs, and then after reading the book, uh, realized that this is not a UFO story at all. There's something much bigger is going on. Um, so I think some of those people, after reading the book, got permission to visit the property and did and had their own experiences, uh, went back to Washington, contacted Harry Reid and told Harry Reid about it. Reid was already uh, sort of well-informed about the ranch and had a great and abiding interest in it. And that is what stimulated um, the effort to start a study. Uh, the $22 million that you've heard about right. that's attributed to ATIP, that money was sent to Bass, the organization set up by Bigelow, to handle OSAP, which was the other UFO program. And but they, it was much broader uh-huh. than UFOs. They were, they were trying to figure out, is this a threat to national security? Are there national security implications? Is there something there? Is there a portal uh, to another world? Is somebody playing mind games? Is there a foreign power that might be involved? Is there somebody that can manipulate this to, to cause confusion? And, uh, you know, the same old argument that's been used about UFOs in general. In basically, they wanted to find out if is this a threat, and then once that the, some time had been spent with boots on the ground, they realized this is not a UFO story. This is not about ETs. This is such something that's much bigger, and we should probably figure out how it all fits together. And that was sort of the purpose of it. It, it had very broad parameters. In fact, it had no parameters. Follow the evidence where it leads, and see if it can figure this out. But they didn't eventually find anything out because I, I think they probably came to the same conclusion that Eric Davis comes uh, that says in the film and Colm and a few other people that 
there didn't seem to be any pattern to anything. And everything that happened did not seem to be related to any other thing. It would seem to be, one, unpredictable, and two, only predictable in a sense that, as I think uh, John Alexander says, it seemed to anticipate what people were thinking or saying in private or whatever. And it would affect things. The things would be affected that way, in an eerie way. People just kept – they would talk about something privately, like the uh, incident with the cattle that are in the, the, the four giant bulls that were in the, uh, that small enclosure. They were just talking about the, um, the Sherman – no. Gorman. Yeah. Gorm- yeah, Gorman. they were talking about it would be so horrible if they lost these cows. They drive by and the cattle are sitting there in the, in the pen and they come back and they're gone and they look around and they're locked in this tiny little enclosure. And all they'd been doing is just kind of talking about it privately in the truck and within probably half an hour this happened maybe many one of you can describe that incident because it's it's probably an iconic thing about what's going uh, incident at the at the skinwalker jeremy yeah yeah i um you know that that incident is really interesting i i think that there's something physical about that incident so it shows you both sides so the story goes and it is described that the, the Gormans were discussing that these prize bulls that they had, these four huge prize bulls, they were like, oh, man, I hope it doesn't mess with those. And as they're going you know, through their ranch and they're going to leave, they're, they're not in the pen. You, you know, there's nowhere for these bulls to go. There's no broken or open gate or anything that these bulls got out of. They're just gone. They're just not there. So Tom Gorman starts looking around, and instinctively he looks inside kind of like a trailer that, you know, it's a few steps up and it's a skinny, tight little trailer. And he peers in, which, by the way, is, is boarded up. It's locked up with a big metal hatch on the front with cobwebs on the inside and rust on the outside. And sure enough, these four bulls are standing in their packed catatonic. So any rancher you speak with to get these big, you know, bulls in an enclosed space all together like that to step up these steps. By the way, there's no entrance. There's no way that they, they could have just walked in there and they're sitting in there. And the NIDS team did check the latches and the gates and the, and the locks on there and, you know, cobwebs on the inside of the doors with Dr. Kelleher said. So the moment Tom Gorman sees these animals packed in there catatonic, he yells for his wife and the, the animals go berserk, which they should do. That's the normal reaction to be in an enclosed space like that. And they kick out one of the back sides of the trailer, just demolish the entire trailer and they get out. Now, the phys- so that shows a mental aspect to this, a, a precognitive sentient intelligence, as Dr. Alexander used to say. So there you go. You've got that. But then also there's a physical aspect. All of the metal, the, 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 you know, the kind of um, corral. The corral. Magnetized. Yeah, highly magnetized for a couple of hours. And that's something they could track and monitor. And, you know, I asked Dr. Kelleher what he thought about that. And he says, I don't know. Like, you know, in the film, he talks about it being a brain teaser. There's no... What, what is that? It's physical evidence of some mechanism that occurred, but we, we don't know what it means. No one knows what it means. So that, that's what that event you described was in, in, in you know, summary. It's a very definite impish trickster quality to it. Uh, you know, the rancher confides to his wife, boy, I hope nothing happens to them. Half an hour later, exactly their worst fears come true. This thing's messed with messes with them. Doesn't kill the bulls, which it probably could have done it in effect dematerializes them and puts them in this tiny little trailer. Now there is no way you can get those bulls into a trailer. You could spend all day, have a team of cowboys and a couple of forklifts and they still couldn't do it. And they certainly wouldn't have put them in a catatonic state like that. 
Uh, how do you get them in the trailer without opening the door? Because that's what happened. And how? Do, what technology dematerializes them, puts them in the trailer, and then magnetizes uh, all the corral bars? I mean, and that was just 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 to get a reaction out of the rancher and his wife, just to mess with their head and let them know that it knows what they're thinking before they think it. And and Greg, I mean, similarly, account after account after account. That, that's not an isolated event in a way because, you know, we interviewed and continue to interview and work with people in the basin who have lived next to the ranch, uh, for, you know, for decades. And one of the individuals in the film, uh, her name is Janice and, and her son, Gary. And Janice is, is explaining to us these accounts that she has where she just braided a horse's hair and, you know, she loves her animals. She braided her horse's hair and then she goes back out 20 minutes later and the horse is, comp- is dead but not only is the horse dead laying there, the horse seemed to be dragged through a metal uh, panel. There's tracks before and there's tracks after. She doesn't understand how the tracks move through metal. There's the horse laying there dead. She was just braiding it there. She called out you know, animal control or sheriff or some tribal police, something like that, and had them look at it. She's like, explain to me that. And they were petrified. That's one of the types of strange, you know, high strangeness things that occurs in the area all the time. And that's not even taking into account the constant orbs and lights and uh, craft that are seen, you know, traversing the airspace there. So this type of thing, they're one-offs. We can't explain it. Magnetized bars, very strange. This is a couple decades ago. But those types of things are continuously happening in various forms. Is it still happening now with the new one? Yes. What kind of stuff yeah. is happening with the new owner? And you talk to him in the film, and he's uh, his voice is you know you shoot him from the neck down, and his voice is is uh, is covered up, or I mean, sorry, it's garbled, so you can hear what he's saying, but not tell what his voice is. What was? There's a few questions there. What is the interest of the new owner? What are they doing? What have they found? And probably most importantly, to me anyway, what are they doing differently to be able to figure out what the mechanisms are here at, at the ranch and in the valley? That's a lot of questions. I'll just add Sorry. something really – yeah, it's okay. I'll just add something really briefly and let George take it over. But, I mean, I would just like to say that the, the new owner, it, it, he's an exciting new owner. I, I'm really glad it's someone like him that's excited about the study and getting information out to people than, than any other kind of person. Uh, the new oh, owner, so he does want to get the information wants, out, huh? Yes, he does. Absolutely. That he is, at least he has stated that to me extremely clearly. And okay. that was his first thing is going in the film with us. So that's good to hear. I think that's great. And it, yeah, I do. I think that is really great. And anyway, the, just to answer the question real quick, little bit of it, and then George take over, just basically the, the new owner wants confidentiality because, you know, he does have an empire of business behind him and it would be distracting, I think, for his business and also for the ranch and the studies going on there. If, you know, his identity was made public. So I think it's very smart. I think I would do the same thing. So I'm going to respect that. We're all going to respect that. And he's been very gracious to us. Um, he has seen, he told me, hard physical craft. He saw a flying saucer, a silver disc. He's like, when I saw that, he said, that was it. Game on. I am 100% in. It was like a display. It hooked me. And that's it. That caught his attention, weaponized his curiosity. He was in full force. So I think that's what he told me was his number one experience. He saw a flying saucer hovering over Skinwalker Ridge. Okay, great. From there, there are so many experiences that his employees and the people he brought to the ranch have had. You know, some of them have UFO disease. I mean, people that say they go there for like an hour and have like, you know, a parasitic 
you know, um, attachment of a hitchhiker. Yeah, I don't know, man, maybe. But people are also fucking crazy, right? So we have to put that into the mix. So people see what they want to fucking see. But are there things going on? Well, most certainly he's captured some very interesting evidence. And, you know, I hope he continues it. I hope he continues to up upgrade the systems that he's using. And his motivation, I think, is purely, you know, out of curiosity and interest. And I think he's got good intentions. So that's my take on it. And you should hear what George has to say. Yeah, I, I think the same thing. I mean, he his intentions are the same as Bob's, is to figure out what's going on there. The fact that he's willing to take on um, the risks that are involved, the expense that's involved is a great thing. I know for a, a period there, I was even trying to put together a group that might buy the ranch, but I could never have brought to it what, what he would do because it costs a lot of money to have people there all the time on the ground. And uh, he's invested in a lot of equipment. I don't think it, I'm going to say what that equipment is. Uh, and I'm not sure that we want to be too specific on the kinds of um, evidence that he's acquired because it's up to him to release that. We do include him in the uh, in the film, and he's talking about the general goals of the newly resumed study. Uh, he doesn't get a real specific, but the, uh, we, he has shown us some stuff. Some of the images I think that he's captured on video and photos might be explainable, and some of them are not. I mean, there are some things that have happened that they, his team has recorded big events um, that I had not seen before, and I don't recall anything during the NIDS era, uh, anything even being comparable to it. He's, he's had uh, a lot of people there. Uh, it's been more open. I think he's had more people there than, than maybe in the entire time that, that NIDS, uh, that Bob Bigelow owned the property. He's had a lot of folks who have visited, and several of them have had very dramatic experiences. One of them, again, I think the most dramatic one was a really big, burly um, uh, aggressive sort of guy who um, was basically essentially paralyzed. Uh, I think probably I'm not going to get more detailed than that. Um, not paralyzed permanently and not harmed permanently, but, uh, but whatever this thing is that's on the property made a demonstration. And I don't think it's a lesson that that guy that we're talking about will ever forget. It's very encouraging that uh, this guy, the new owner has continued to work, has invested in a bunch of uh, additional technology has uh, competent people on his staff and wants to get to the bottom of it and to share that eventually with the public. But when that will be, I don't know. The, the, again, the, the trick is this thing is elusive. I mean, it's tricky. It's hard to pin it down. It's hard to put a label on it. And I'm not sure if we're ever going to be able to exactly figure it out. It seems to be kind of a learning curve, a, a challenge, that the, the journey is more important than the destination. Yeah, well, you can say that, yeah, Greg, basically about the whole paranormal yeah. subject. If you're looking for a, an end game here, like, I'm going to get the answer, you're going to have tunnel vision all the way down the line there. So go ahead, Jeremy. Yeah, well, I think there's, you know, this is an appropriate place to say, look, uh, you know, this episode you're recording is really like one of our big first interviews, and it's dropping right when the film is going to be available, and the value of you know getting it on iTunes or Vimeo is that you get an hour and a half of extra footage besides the two hours of bonus material where in that bonus material George goes into depth in what the mechanisms of the United States government programs with you know, in association with the twenty two million dollars from Harry Reid and all of this towards Skinwalker Ranch it has uh, in there an extended interview with the new owner 
who talks specifically about what it is that his intents are with the ranch. So that footage is valuable. And then there's this campfire, you know, 20 minute bonus material piece where it goes into this, uh, the philosophy, you know, really from George of what, what is actually going on there? You know, what is evidence? So I just thought it's an appropriate time to say, you're all listening to this podcast. You know, this is when you can go watch this footage and get that bonus material and really get up to date. So by reading the book and watching the film, you're going to know more about this than anybody. And so that was the point of making it. I just want to say that. All right. I asked uh, George earlier, the first question I had for him was, why did NIDS not release any or much of this uh, data that they collected on the ranch publicly? That was the first question. Do you want to deal with that one? Well, I I don't think that's true. I mean, I know that's the perception is that people think, gosh, why don't why doesn't the, the whole public get to march up to Bigelow Aerospace and go into the vault and poke around in the drawers and see whatever there is? I mean, we wrote the book with permission uh, from Bob Bigelow. If he had said no, uh, then it, it wouldn't have come out. I mean, right. there was none. You know, there there were a couple of newspaper stories that were done about the ranch, and uh, but very little after Nids took over and the Bigelow team was there. The things that happened to them and and to the family during that period they were not made public. Not until 1993. When uh, Bigelow gave me the green light to write about it, uh, uh, he and Colum had figured, well, you know, the activity is down to almost nothing. Maybe uh, if we put an article out there uh, that we'll get some ideas on other places where this is going on and we can move the study someplace else. And in fact, that did happen. We they did uh, the newspaper articles that we wrote and, and were carried here in Las Vegas, went all over the world. All kinds of uh, interesting information uh, percolated up to the surface. And they did get some new leads, but um, not enough to really keep NIDS going. So 2005, um, we tried to kind of push a little bit further, and I consulted with Colum about a book, and Bob had said yes. Now, he had said no to the uh, documentary, and he still was saying no because he didn't want to give too many clues about how to find the place or what it looked like. And so we didn't have any uh, actual photos of the ranch in, in the book. We, we got permission too late. We, we could have put some things in too late, but it, we wrote that thing in like four months. And we told pretty much every story. We told all the stories. We, we told, uh, you know, there's nothing that we left out because it was too sensational. But we almost left out the story of the cigarette smoking dogs because it, it <laughs> seemed just too preposterous on its face. But, uh, but we put it in. But everything that all of the incidents that happened to the NIDS folks, um, are are told in that book. What's happened since then, uh, a lot of that is told in this film and, and hopefully in maybe future films, but most of that has not been made public. But the NIDS stories uh, are told in that book and in, you know, in, in subsequent interviews uh, with some of the key people uh, since then and public presentations by people like Colum and myself. So there's no deep, dark secrets uh, from the NIDS period. There is a heck of a lot that we don't know about the Bass period. I think what people were interested in, I think the, the it, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, was any data that was because what you're saying is the data was what happened, not not contained in rows of numbers, not contained in I guess any video footage you could find, uh, which some of it is included in the film. But what you did say to me, uh, your answer to me was, well, they gathered a lot of data, but it uh, but it added up to nothing. They they could make no hide and no head or tail of what this data meant. Is uh, am I saying that properly? Yeah, nothing is reproducible. Nothing ever happened the same way. You'd see 
white orbs and blue orbs and red orbs in different places, different times, behaving differently. But it was never the same. You put up cameras in an area where there had been activity night after night, and then the activity would move. They would have incidents that were completely inexplicable, just trickster kind of stuff. You'd have equipment that would fail in the same spot over and over, or the same general part of the ranch. Uh, batteries would die. Compasses would go spinning around. What what data, What what is what is the data or report that you're going to write uh, that that would somehow convince somebody that's real other than the story that I'm telling you that it is. It happened. There's not a, like data to prove that the fence was magnetized. They had, they had detectors that said it was magnetic. Um, you know, the, the batteries that died, uh, I don't know how you prove that the batteries died or what data <laughs> yeah. points would prove that, but they did, you know, things yeah. that they would see in the sky, those things happened. Um, so I, I don't know what data, what secret data there is. I, I'll tell you what I suspect that there may be that I have not seen is uh, daily reports from the from the team that was on the property. And I've seen some of those things. And uh, Colm and I, when we worked on the book, reconstructed a lot of the incidents that had happened without having the actual uh, incident reports that might have been written. Um, a lot of those things were not written up in reports, the, the dra- more dramatic stuff. Some of them were. But we've told the story about what's in those reports. Um, and, you know, the, the photos and videos, there are some, but but not very many that are really compelling. Uh, you got, uh, you know, blotches of, of light in an inky sea of inky darkness. Uh, the most compelling I- I- images might be the calf mutilation, uh, the um, the giant scoops of, of dirt that were taken out of the, uh, the rangeland, one of the homesteads, uh, things of that sort. Um, those are compelling, but yeah, the skyscraper looking thing on that one piece of video. Yeah, there is a video. They, they left the cameras running 24 hours a day, seven days a week for a couple of years. And occasionally some really interesting images would pop up. But what the hell are they? Could you write a scientific paper uh, based on that image, Greg? You've seen it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the thing that looks like the Twin Towers or a yeah. fan of lights uh, that was weird. It was the same thing. Those guys all put their lives and safety and and reputations on the line, their careers, and they would have gladly written science papers uh, if they had something to to write about, if they had somewhere that would publish it. But the kinds of things that we're talking about, instances and stories, um, nobody's got to publish that. Yeah, well, it, it doesn't. It's not in the realm of science anymore. I think one of the people in the film, um, either Davis or or maybe Colm, uh, said something like, uh, "I don't think science is going to work with this. Not in the way that, uh, not in the way that people accept as science. It's got to be. It has to be done in a different way." Yeah, he was he was uh, you know saying the scientific method didn't seem appropriate anymore for how the phenomenon was displaying itself. You know, one of the most interesting events to me. Because, um, you know, I'm aware of, you know, who actually saw this, but there you are and you're stalking the phenomenon up on a ridge and you happen to have way back in the day before they were, you know, kind of more available, a Russian form of night vision that you're looking through. And as you see with your eyes, you see a kind of a a soft orange glow, you know, uh, that looked like it was on a road. You know, what is that light? Kind of like the lights we saw at Second Homestead. There's just something's lighting up. Well, through the night vision, these scientists, one of the scientists looking and saw a four feet off the ground, a porthole, an orange geometric inverted porthole 
sitting four feet off the ground with a being, no neck, black, huge, maybe 700 pounds, coming up, using its elbows to push on the edges, drop down onto the ground, and run off into the woods. This is ridiculous. I mean, this is wild. But you're talking about scientists who, by the way, weren't supposed to tell this. This is not something that was made for TV. This is something they had to decide how to write a report on. What is this? What is the optical nature of this wormhole? You look and think, what, what, you know, what is this being or this creature coming out of it? Void of light. I mean, it's just wild what was experienced by the, the people that studied the ranch. Mm-hmm. The other thing that George pointed out to me was that the people that uh, Bigelow brought out there were scientists, were, were all scientists. And they, correct me if I'm wrong, George, there was some sort of, de- of a debate whether to do this sort of in a spiritual or shamanistic way or in a scientific way by just gathering data and the scientific way won out. Is that That's true? true? There was an ongoing debate. Even for a couple of years after NIDS was on the property among the science advisory board, all very smart people, all of them to one degree or another had some experience with these kinds of topics. There was an internal debate that probably it continues to this day. And it comes up whenever these guys get together or get into an online conversation about how it should have been done. Should they have, um, not quite gone gangbusters as they did with a high-tech sort of approach, go in with cameras and detection equipment and scientific gear and really hunt the skinwalker, go after it, pursue it actively, as opposed to going in with shaman, holy men, um, priests, psychics, remote viewers, things of that sort, and then sort of take a a real low-tech approach uh, a, a low-key approach, sit around, meditate, and see what comes calling. I, I think that if they could do it again, if they had a, a choice to do it again, that that's the approach that they might take. Um, and m- maybe there's a, a combination in between that would have worked. Yeah, you know, some combination of the two, because uh, humans get information in many different ways. The two main ways are gathering objective information, and the other way is intuitive or creative, or whatever you want to call it. And it, it seems like it's a really tough nut to crack with this uh, phenomenon, especially at, at Skinwalker, how you would break that down. And then how would, how would you put that information together in, in a way that made sense? You know, what are they trying to do? There? What, what were they trying to do there? Understand what was going on and harness it in some way? Or, you know, what was the idea when they went in? The, the basic idea. I know that the, the, to understand it figure out what it was and where it was from and why it was there. Why, what, what is it about that spot that made it so active? And I think eventually, and we'll come back to that question, but I think eventually they sort of came to the conclusion that it's probably like that everywhere, um, that maybe it's just more obvious in the Uinta Basin and then a Skinwalker Ranch. It's made itself more obvious, but that if you were to take the kind of resources that NIDS poured into that property, throw a dart on the map and send hmm. that team there, you would probably find the same kind of things if you dug deep enough pretty much everywhere. Uh, maybe the degree, maybe different degrees, maybe it'd be harder to dig. It's less obvious. Um, obviously, we believe that there are hot spots for these kinds of things. And for a while, it certainly was a UFO hotspot. Um, but, you know, the things that came out of the study of the ranch, they would never have appeared anywhere if NIDS hadn't been there. It would have been it, the the rancher would have buried it. It wouldn't have appeared in local newspapers. It was, would have been a story that died. It would have become folklore, and nobody would know anything about it. Uh, so yeah, they went there with the idea of trying to figure it out. 
I know that there are suspicions, again, about Bob Bigelow and his intentions, and he wants to build a fleet of flying saucers and, uh, you know, take the elite off the planet or the crazy stuff like that. I, I suppose that if he unlocked the secrets of uh, how to bend space and time and, um, you know, create your own gravity or whatever, he would have put it to use. He would have figured it out. But that was never I never heard him say that. He wanted to know what was going on. He wanted to see if there was a unified theory of weirdness that tied together UFOs and ETs and abductions and cattle mutilations and crop circles and poltergeists and all the stuff that happens at the ranch. Because, it, you know, it seemed to be a big glaring neon sign that said, here it is. You <laughs> yeah. know, it's all here in one place and it's all related. And now it's up to you to figure out how it's related. Yeah, and then, of course, that didn't happen. I mean, is, is there anything concrete, anything, any conclusions taken away from the, the study that was uh, went on for years with NIDS, BASS, DIA, etc.? Or did they just say, this is really weird and we don't know what to do about it? Well, if there are any uh, firm conclusions, I haven't heard of them. Uh, I'll put it that way. Um, you know, there's some ideas. And, and then Colm and I in the book, we explore some of those ideas. Uh, Jeremy and his film... Uh, allows the scientists who are part of the study to kick around the ideas, but they don't come to any firm conclusion. And I'm not sure we will ever be able to come to a firm conclusion. And maybe it's, as I said before, it's the, it's the search. It's the figuring it out. That's the, that's the purpose is to look at reality in a different way. Um, ponder our own place in, in the universe and our own place in the food chain. And, and, uh, and maybe that benefits us somehow in the long run. Yeah, the, and the certainty with which ahead. people kind of scream, yeah, the certainty with which people kind of scream at us online, like you know, besides saying, "Oh, you know, we're part of a cabal and a conspiracy," the other kind of attack that I've been, you know, kind of witness to a lot is that why don't you tell the truth? You know, this is interdimensional. There are portholes here. It's aliens. I mean, you know, people have these crazy ideas that they have figured it out, and that we're just not telling the truth. And the thing is, they've figured it out with less evidence than me, you know, so, it, you know, that that is the, the, the truth is we don't know what it is. We, we know that these that these events are happening. We know that they have real world implications that, you know, it is possible that there are medical implications you saw in the film. And I don't want to give it away, but there are some very serious, heavy moments in the film, at least where it creates a uh, 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 it creates doubt. It creates doubt in people's minds. And that's kind of a, that's something I wanted to focus on the, the human aspect. That is a real phenomenon. That is real. People are uh, worried that what is going on there is it government or is it paranormal? Is it having negative effects on us? And and again, you saw that in the movie. So yeah, um, yeah, man, it's it's a real it's a real mystery. And anybody that thinks they they've got it sorted out, especially when they have less information than than George or me, well, good luck. I mean, I'm I'm surprised you figured it all out by now. Are there any, well, George sort of intimated this earlier. Are there any other areas in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world that that's uh, Bigelow or NIDS or anybody investigated or anybody's doing now besides uh, Skinwalker that you guys know of? Well, I, I can tell you that because we mentioned in the book that uh, that NIDS uh, spent a lot of time on the ground at Dulce. They had heard the stories, the same stories that you've heard, Greg, about the, you know, supposedly underground base. That's not what drew them there. And I think they crossed that that one off their list. Uh, but there was a lot of legitimately unusual and unexplained activity. They developed a relationship with the Apache tribe there uh, and were given access to a, a lot of places that most people don't get to see. Was that uh, the one that Gabe Valdez worked on? 
You know, I'm trying to remember. I, I'm pretty sure that Gabe Valdez was involved with, with yeah, these guys. Yeah, because he told but, me he was uh, working for NIDS at, at one point, sometime in the early yeah, 2000s, yeah. I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Colin Kelleher, who was the lead investigator at Skinwalker Ranch, was the lead investigator down there, spent a lot of time. And they, they found that there was some legitimately unusual activity comparable to Skinwalker, not quite the same level, but uh, the same kind of mix of weird stuff. Um, it's also true in the Yakima uh, Valley, the Yakima Reservation up in Washington State that has uh, a lot of activity like that. I don't think they took as, as focused a look at that. They, they collected some information. They were interested in uh, the area around Sedona. Tom Dongo had written an excellent book about that area a while back on what I think it's the Bradshaw Ranch um, that they, they looked at uh, briefly and not intensely. And there was the, uh, and then after Skinwalker, there was the that other ranch where the guy claims he's killed twenty three aliens, and and uh, the Nids people did go see that oh, that property. Arizona, yeah, did interview that guy. Yeah, they did interview the guy. They looked around. I think, I think they didn't find anything to substantiate the claims that were made. And I think well, uh, I think the, the exact some, words were utter bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I. I think the conclusion was that uh, they felt there was an attempt to maybe jack up the price or the value of that property, the perceived value that that maybe a billionaire might buy it if there were dead aliens uh, uh, on the property. They didn't find anything to substantiate those kind of claims and uh, took a pass on it. But, yeah, they found that there are other there are other hotspots. And um, I think under different circumstances, if Mr. Bigelow had not launched uh, the aerospace effort, and put all of his uh, eggs into that basket that he probably would have continued on some level, but he is not, it's not, I know people don't believe that, but he's not, he's mm-hmm. not involved in it. Well, and, and there's, there's kind of two, in my mind, there, there seems appears to be two kinds of hotspots. One is locational and might be based on, you know, the predominant culture and the cosmology of consciousness in that area. Again, I'm just completely guessing, but that's one idea. And then another is, individual awareness there seems to be uh people you know who are magnets for for the phenomenon and you know that kind of brings us to why uh george's and my friend robbie williams why he was in the movie you know george you know wanted to uh bring robbie and see if you know robbie's in 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 you know inherently strange uh you know perception could help stoke the fire of this stuff i mean robbie has had legitimately a number of what we would call paranormal experiences, experiences that have modified, you know, his art and his life, you know, as he's writing the song Arizona and he's going through this song, you know, he sees an object responding to the song in the sky, a ball of light. Uh, There was a a black shadow and this is all in the uh, bonus material features in the film, the Robbie Williams piece. There's a black shadow, like a strip that comes through and like 11 or 12 people witnessed this. So Robbie has been plagued. He saw he saw a craft close up he could throw a tennis ball at. And, and there have been other witnesses around Robbie. So Robbie seems to be one of those artists, uh, you know, who seems to attract and has a genuine interest. Because if you saw what he saw, you would want to know also what it is. So I think it's locational, might be, you know, consciousness of, of a culture, but also it's individual. And I think certain people are magnets for, you know, high strangeness. And I think that's kind of what we see with, with Robbie, and, and there was an event on that trip. There was, and it, I, it wasn't my event. I didn't experience it, neither did Robbie or George, but there was an event, you know, somebody that was there with us, and so maybe it did work. Maybe Robbie being embedded there on the ranch, it, it did work. Um, but yeah, I think that people, individuals, oftentimes can have some sort of relationship to the phenomenon, and I think that carries with them 
wherever they go. Yeah, I think. Uh, I, let me uh, add this about ahead. Robbie. I know that there are seen comments. People wonder about, well, why is he in this film? Um, you know, when I first met him six or seven years ago, it was for an introduction from Mark Allen, the guy who was a co-founder of Bob Todd's Secret. They had gone on these secret little uh, UFO sort of field trips for the same reason, because Robbie has an abiding interest in it and because he tends to attract kind of weird things to happen. So um, Mark had told Robbie about me. He had read the book. He's well read on these subjects. Um, he spent uh, an, an inordinate amount of time um, reading and uh, researching and meeting people. So he invited me to his house in Beverly Hills. I went down there and spent a couple of days, told him about the ranch, and he was hooked. You know, he, he started talking. That was a long time ago, and he started talking about maybe someday he'd like to go there. I said, well, that's that's a tall order. A lot of people have tried, but we'll we'll keep the option open. Well, we maintained our friendship over the years. And let me just tell you, he's a really interesting dude. Uh, you know, we don't, I didn't know he was a big star. I didn't know that Mark had told me he was, but in the U.S., he isn't really well known, but yeah, around the world, he is a major, major star. And, you know, he sold out these stadiums three nights in a row and, you know, you know, millions of tickets. And, and, uh, he's, he causes mob scenes wherever he goes. Well, um, I guess he liked the idea that neither Jeremy or I were really, to that whole <laughs> thing that we just liked him for who he was and the uh, and he likes being a regular guy and he's a smart guy and he has a really interesting life and he's very down to earth he's nothing like the character you see uh in his videos and then uh you know various tabloid stories he wanted to go so we said yeah man you can come with us we got it worked out with the uh, owner of the property who did know his name and said yeah come on so we were going to drive to utah and, you know, the way we always do, get a couple of vehicles, pound in some vehicles, make the nine-hour drive from Las Vegas and, and uh, have a little road trip with a gang, one of yeah. whom being Robbie Williams. He said, yeah, I've it's got a, a better drive. idea. Yeah, it was a beautiful surprise. He said, yeah, I'll, I'll, he just got a, got a jet. <laughs> I'll pick up the, you know, he and Jeremy flew from L.A. with a couple of other guys uh, who are part of Robbie's entourage and picked up uh, Matt Adams and I in Las Vegas and off we went. It was very cool. But the coolest part is it set off all these crazy stories that about whose jet it was and what secret agency we were working with. And we had a lot of fun with that. Actually, uh, Jeremy told me that uh, he he's never actually experienced anything. But because Robbie was there, apparently one of his associates, bodyguards or whatever, was watching Jeremy walk out. What? Where was it, Jeremy? Can you tell the story? The the shadowy thing that was behind you, because you didn't see it. Yeah, sure. Say, it's but, a very. But the but you said this guy no. did uh, saw it behind you and said we got to go or something like that. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the the basis of it is you know we're all out there. We're we're walking around. We're looking. We're open to having some sort of experience. You know, none of us are expectant that we are, but we're we're open. We're maybe we're overcritical or over. Um, you know, we're, we're we're being open minded, but we're also very guarded so we're walking around and then the kind of stoic soft-spoken you know badass military dude who was there as a private security there he is i walk in from an outdoor area and from this back room and and, and there is a history to this area uh, of the it's the old command bunker for for nids and this little uh area there, there is actually a history of this type of phenomenon occurring in there which which the guy did not know so there I am, I walk out, his eyes get kind of big, I sit down, I don't really get what's going on, and it's maybe 3.34 in the morning at this time, and he says, time to go. 
So we all say, okay, we get in the car. He goes, as soon as we get off the property, he stops the car. Robbie could read the guy and he says, what? And, and, and this first time the guy ever really shared anything personal, he says, I've never seen anything like this. But when you, he's talking to me, when you walked out from that back area, I thought Matt, Matt is uh, the cameraman that's been working with George for 15 years. I thought he was behind you, six foot tall. But as you came into the light, I noticed that, well, first of all, Matt had left two hours ago. And it was a large uh, humanoid-shaped, thick, billowing, black, textured smoke, like like a smoke being, like something in the form of a human, just right behind me. I mean, shadowing me, following me was his exact words. And then as he kind of starts to move because he sees that this is a tangible physical thing poof it's gone and then he didn't know what to say so he was just kind of freaked you know let's go so what he didn't know is that that type of entity had occurred in that exact spot before uh with the nids people reported i mean that was told to me by dr colin kelleher so fascinating no i didn't see it but i can tell you the effects on this individual who i had gotten to know for a number of days there um, we're real. And, and I do believe him that he saw that with his eyes and I don't know what it means, but I know I, I've had no adverse you know, effects from that. I didn't see it myself. Mm-hmm. People call it a sentient mist, by the way, a sentient mist. Right. And, uh, and it, the, the, the NIDS people had installed a trailer where they had that it used as lodging for their security and science teams when they were on the property and also to house their equipment. And uh, and this thing has been seen in and out of that thing, floating through walls a number of times. There's one uh, story that has not been told outside of these circles, but during the period where they just had security guys uh, on the ranch in between uh, the NIDS period and the, the Bass period, um, these guys would, would go there and they'd uh, call their wives and Skype with their wives at night. And uh, one of the, guy, the security guys who'd been there uh, he's talking to his wife about to say good night. She says, I thought you told me you're there alone, like suspiciously. She goes, he goes, I am. I am here alone. And she had just seen this thing, the sentient mist go behind him while, while she's talking to him on Skype. There have been guys who uh, the security guys have woke up at night and see this float through one wall, float across the room and float out the other. And in fact, this guy, we were the security guy for Robbie. We had joked with him. We were joking the whole time. Uh, during this trip, you know, it's always the security guy that that gets that something comes after. <laughs> yeah. And he was kind of had a nervous laughter about it. He actually saw that thing go into the trailers. The story he told me later, he when Jeremy and the group got up to the NIDS trailer, they, they saw it enter the trailer when they were outside. And then he saw it a second time when Jeremy was it was following Jeremy a little an hour or so later. And that's when he said, everybody up, we're leaving. We're getting the hell out of here. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it's freaky just to see, you know, the sincerity of which you explained it. And again, I wish, I really do wish I had seen it, that I could stand behind it as something that I've personally seen. But I do find it interesting, too. He did not know the history of that particular um, manifestation or that area, and that's what he reported. So, yeah, it's fascinating. Here's an obvious question. I wanted to do, get, would you talk about the Lazar thing a little bit before we, before we go after this question? Like how far you are along with it and what people can expect? Can we talk about that a little bit right after this? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And maybe a little bit with uh, George because obviously that was your connection to uh, Bob Lazar. Here, yeah, that's the reason I'm, I'm doing it. Yeah. As you're telling these stories, we've gone through, you know, reasons, what people's motivations are, what NIDS was doing there. 
most of the questions I wanted to get through. In fact, you guys answered about half the other questions I had in the midst of these other questions, which I thank you for. But here's a real obvious one um, for both of you. I mean, you can answer these separately. What is the thing that just confused, frightened? What was the most disturbing thing either of you heard about, saw, whatever? And you know, what, what do you think that implication is for that? Or is there any implication or explanation? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I you want me to go first. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, go first, yeah. I, I think the most disturbing part of it is the hitchhiker aspect. Um, mm, yeah, I agree uh, with you. You know, this, this it, whatever is going on there, it's an intelligence. You know, it appears in physical form. It has physical effects. It affects the landscape and, and it can affect uh, tools and objects. It affects vehicles. It has control over energy. It messes with people's minds. It figures out what we're thinking before we think about it. Uh, it anticipates what we're going to do. It can get very physical, and it's very psychic, and it's psychological. Whatever it is, it's smart. And um, I think we should be thankful that it is not more vengeful and angry, because it clearly could do a lot more damage to people if it wanted to. Uh, but it didn't. It, it was able to make a distinction between people and animals. And I think the reason it hurt animals is to get the attention of folks who are around there. Uh, it's unfortunate that the three hunting dogs were vaporized and that cattle were carved up. We do worse to cattle all the time, but it did it in a way that was very dramatic because it seemingly wanted to get our attention. But clearly, everyone who's been there and studied this knows that if it really wanted to, to do harm and get serious uh, and, and do bad things to humans, it certainly is capable, and there isn't a damn thing we could do about it. It didn't do that. Uh, when there has been harm, it seems to have been incidental, you know, or uh, a, a learning curve of some sort. But the other, the other part that I was mentioning about the, the hitchhiker, it, it does bother me because that seems malevolent. It's been nothing but nasty. Um, it's been scary and it's messed with people's lives and it lingers for a long time. And it almost has a different flavor and feeling from the general feeling that you have at the ranch. I, I didn't say this before, but I, I, I was leading up to it and then forgot and got sidetracked. But, you know, a lot of people go there and they see what they want to see. As Jeremy said, it's like a Rorschach test. You know, people who want to see monsters, whether they actually see them or not. They'll go home to the Midwest and tell that story anyway, because what the heck, they drove that far. So they'll tell those stories. And some people really do see strange things, uh, others exaggerated or whatever. But, you know, you kind of bring your own baggage to the to the ranch, and that's what you get. I have never seen anything there. But after I'd been there for five or six years, I finally blurted out on one of the trips that we took with uh, Bob Bigelow that um, – and I was sheepish to admit it, but I said, you know, I can't help it, but I get a good feeling when I'm here. I get a good feeling. Um, I'm energized. It's um, like I stick my finger in a socket or something. And then the caretaker of the property who had been there for a couple of years, he jumps up. Yeah, me too. He says, look, I'm, he was like uh, in his late sixties at that time and was working every day morning to dusk and, and uh, had the energy of a teenager. And he says, it's something about this place. Uh, it, it affects me. So I, I, I get a generally good feeling about it, even though some really scary things have happened there. But that hitchhiker phenomenon, and now there have been eight or nine cases that I know about, um, 10, make that 10. Um, that's, that's disturbing. And I, I'm, 
that's that's disturbing, and I yeah. can't explain it. Yeah, and it seems to happen, as you said, with people with a chip on their shoulder or some kind of psychological problem that they haven't dealt with or something like that, and it just manifests. Um, yeah, or people that challenge it, yeah. How about you, Jeremy? You know, I was taken aback a little bit. You know, all of this is kind of fun to talk about, and, you know, it's, if you don't experience it, it's like, wow, it's a kind of interesting story, and I want to document it. But where it really got me, there are two events that I'll share with you, one that I don't usually share, but it's just, uh, you know, I've been talking with a woman who has been neighbors to the ranch for about three decades, and she was just a jovial, good-spirited woman that really took a while to warm up to me to to just explain to me what it's like living there and the things that they see. And she did not want to be on camera. She did not want to be in the limelight. She was not telling me so I could tell other people. She was telling me from my own information. Yeah. Yeah. And when that's what I'm getting to. So, you know, you're really isolated when these events are part of your daily life. It's really not something you can talk to people about. They just write you off. They think you're crazy, but let's imagine for a second, it's real. And these things are happening. You know, you do need to unload that. You do need to get that off your chest because you do have fears associated with this type of power that's going on with phenomenon like this. So basically, eventually I get her to come on camera and I'm you know, telling George that, you know, she's an important witness. You know, she's had experience. I believe her legitimate. She, you know, she comes into the room. She gets on camera. The second I hit click, it's like she shattered everything. She just broke down. And I think it was just the weight, you know, the weight of not being able to really express what it's like living with a little bit of, you know, fear, even though you're trying to relate to this stuff and not knowing what is going on. Is this paranormal? Is this government? Is it harmful? Has it harmed my child? Has it harmed my friends? So that for me was really a moment where I realized there's real world implications. This is all fun to talk about. But if you see and experience something like this and it affects you like that, it, it's not a game anymore. And I think that the hitchhiker aspect for some people, that, that is very real, very real. So that was what really marked me with this, where I had to take it, looking at it from a different perspective. It was that experience that changed me. All right. What do you see as the future for the ranch? Do you think that uh, the new owner is going to come up with something that's going to be useful are they doing so already? Have there been breakthroughs there yet? Do you know anything about that? Uh, I would answer it this way is that nothing that I, uh, I would want to say, uh, because you know, he's, he's, he's working hard at it, putting a lot of effort and money into it. And, um, I, uh, whatever his agenda is, we're going to let him play that out. He shared with us a lot of information. Some of that he's allowed us to make public, including, uh, the interview that uh, he gave to Jeremy, but I think he, uh, I don't think he's ready to make any announcements right now. I'll just say, I think it's the properties in good hands that uh, he has um, uh, good motives and wants to figure it out and, and wants to get to the bottom of it and is willing to spend a lot of money to do it. And uh, that's a good thing because I mean, it could have ended up in totally bad hands. There are other folks who are interested in, in that, what goes on there, uh, even other countries uh, that maybe that's a story for another time, but uh I'm comfortable that this is a a good guy to to be in charge of this thing. Uh, I hope he has all the resources he needs. I don't think that there's any kind of uh, version of Bass or OSAP or ATIP that's involved with this guy at the moment. He's doing it on his own. But with the with what's going on in the world, uh, the talk about maybe a resumption of official studies and budgets and things of that sort, maybe he'll get some help. I hope so. 
Well, yeah, I hope so too, because I think some of this, the thing, you know, when listening to you guys and my point of view on this, which you probably both know, is that the the meaning that's going to come away from this probably can't be communicated in, in a scientific report. It'll have to be something that is personal to the person experiencing it, whatever that might be. So I don't ha- actually don't know how useful writing a report on what's going on there is. What would be more useful is writing a report on what's going on and the implications for everybody else and how that would affect their lives personally. That seemed to make sense. Who knows what we can siphon off of these experiences. I, I don't think it's unworthy to say that there is a scientific approach here. You know, a lot of the NIDS oh, people of course not. No, you know, no. did believe yeah, there's something that can be gleaned, you know, from its uh, you know, optical nature of wormholes all the way down to if there are physical crafts that are making indentions in trees as they're going through, chopping off branches. Well, there's something physical to study. I mean, so yeah. all methods are welcome to the mystery of Skinwalker Ranch. I noticed uh, recently, and I kind of stuck up for you online, Jeremy, a couple months ago, somebody was saying, you know, why can't you tell me what this person said? And you said, because... People will talk to you if they have your confidence. And if you have that confidence, you will hear more. But a rule of that confidence is you cannot go around blabbing everything they said. It's just just the way it works. Because they want to unload a certain amount of information to you that they think might be helpful. And some of the information that they unload onto you that is not public will also be helpful to you in trying to explain what you think is going on from your point of view um, in the way you do it. And I, I was trying to get this through to that person, and I think you understood what I was talking about. I think in, in, um, George has explained yeah. this to him, and he's run up against it too. It's a very strange game you have to play with people who want your confidence but also want to say something. And maybe you can both deal with that because you, you, deal with that. you both deal with this constantly. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, my one of an example of that is, uh, you know, people were very agitated about, you know, Commander Fravor and the information that he had. And, uh, you know, look, I was working with, you know, Commander Dave Fravor for a long time prior, years prior. And, uh, you know, look, it came to fruition. You know, he did an extensive double part interview with me. And, you know, we were able to put out the things we had been talking about for years. So it paid off to sit back and not burn people. And I think as George has often said in his profession, you know, it's like, that's his currency. The moment he burns somebody that gets around and people won't trust him with stories anymore. And so it's just kind of a code of ethics and people can complain and have a tantrum all they want. Uh, but ultimately they should go develop their own sources if they have a problem with how I do things. George? Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, as I, that's how I, sort of started this conversation is how it works in my profession, not just this story uh, or this topic, but it's a good example of it is, you know, people tell you things in confidence that they want you to know. They want to tell you, they want you to understand things. And maybe you can't do the story right then. Uh, but as long as you keep your word and, and um, you know, you don't spill your guts when it's not, uh, you don't have authorization, you don't burn your sources you'll continue to get information. And for me, that's exactly what's happened, what's played out here, is the stuff that I learned from NIDS, you know, a long, long time ago, I kept my word. And because of that, I was allowed to learn a lot more. And and the same thing with Bass. Now, when Bass was created, the two days after that contract was signed uh, to award the money to the Bigelow organization, I knew about it. And seven days after 
it was signed. Uh, Bob Bigelow was on Coast to Coast with me talking about it. He left a trail of breadcrumbs, if anybody wanted to follow them, where he announced that he was creating this organization called Bass, that he had a, a co-sponsor and a partner in this research, uh, and that he was going to be looking in very broad uh, topic areas uh, that were of interest to the coast audience. And, you know, I don't think anybody really quite got the significance of what was going on, but he was telling the world what was happening. And I, I did not uh, spill the beans about uh, details that he had shared with me. And because of that, all of a sudden, um, I'm in a, a really good position to understand the other things that are unfolding right now, TTSA and ATIP and the New York Times. And, um, you know, as you've seen in the film, Greg, um, we start with sort of the uh, the Tic Tac and uh, the, the releases from New York Times. It, because as, as Jeremy and I were making a trip with Matt Adams to the ranch, we knew what was coming from the New York Times. We knew it was days away. We didn't yeah. know exact day because it changed several times. But, and it was very frustrating for me as a journalist because I had sat on that story about the secret study and that it was ongoing for a lot of years. And I argued, well, why don't I get to break this thing, you know? And, you know, it was gently explained to me, and I knew what the answer was, but that I am not the New York Times. And that if I did the story, the Times had said that they would back off. If anybody else broke it before them, they wouldn't do it. And it was important for them to go ahead and do it because by the New York times saying it's okay to report on this stuff, even though they, they picked a weird angle to pursue, uh, you know, it allowed other media, other major news organizations gave them cover to go ahead and pursue it. The Washington post and Newsweek and time and the LA times and, uh, and you know, networks Fox uh, has jumped all over it. That obviously was in the best interest of the pursuit of truth rather than me getting that story. So keeping quiet is often, and keeping your word is what you're supposed to do as journalists. And, um, and when you do it, especially over a long period of time, people trust you and they give you more information and man, it's paid off in a big way for me and for Jeremy and his film. And, and there's so much more to come. I mean, there's a lot more to come. Yeah. Uh, with regard to this story or, or the Lazar thing or just a bunch of uh, projects you have on the horizon? Uh, I, I would say with regard yeah. to this story, I mean, we, we did a Jeremy put together a two hour film with another hour and a half of bonus material. We haven't scratched the surface. I mean, there is so much stuff, not only in the archival material uh, of my my things right. that have uh, not been done as a documentary, but the, the new information and new witnesses that Jeremy has recorded. Uh, we, we've got a lot of stuff. Uh, he's got a lot of stuff that we didn't have room for it, but it's going to be great. Assuming that the, this film does well enough to justify another one. Um, there's a, there's a lot more of that story to be told, but there's also other things going on, Greg, as you know, I mean, mm -hmm. uh, related to ATIP and TTSA and uh, a lot of uh, serious people who are taking a renewed look at what previously were forbidden topics. Yeah, which is a good thing. Oh, I, you know what? I had one question somebody had thrown at me. Uh, one of my friends, they said, was anything material ever covered on, recovered on the ranch? Just some physical object or piece of flesh or something that could be examined in a laboratory? Well, a, a couple of things. Uh, one, the most obvious uh, piece of evidence was the, the calf that was carved up. And the, uh, as we tell the story in the film, um, yeah, it's you know, that calf was butchered in, in broad daylight. All of the meat was taken off. 
they uh, shipped off samples of tissue and bone to three different labs, and it was uh, clear uh, under microscope that uh, sharp metallic instruments had been used to slice it up, well, a, a heavy instrument to, to, to bash it, and then sort of a scalpel-like instrument to, to slice. Uh, that's physical evidence. Uh, in addition, there was the, the piece of fur that flew off the wolf, mm-hmm. the bulletproof wolf in the beginning of the book. Um, if the rancher had been of an investigative mind at the time and saved that sample, we might already know the answer to Skinwalker Ranch because there'd be DNA analysis of that piece of fur and flesh, but he didn't save it. Uh, the, I think what you're leading toward is the, another rumor about the ranch that there was pieces of metal that were uh, recovered. There's a story that floats around about some dark metallic objects that were found on the property, and it's true. They were, but they turned out to be old batteries. <laughs> um, and I know that those old batteries have been, uh, you know, reborn many, many times in Internet rumors that it was, uh, you know, unobtainium or something, but that it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And as far as I know, I mean, and I, I, I'm pretty sure that that no unknown elements or any kind of evidence like that was obtained on the property during the two studies. Okay, thank you. On to uh, your project you're working on now, which is uh, re-examination of the Bob Lazar story. I guess he's talked extensively for the first time in what since uh since the 90s on camera yeah i mean it's it's a yeah it's it's kind of a a different era and you know again this is because of my relationship with george i have always been interested this is probably what got me interested in the topic and it probably got the majority of people that i know interested in the topic it's an amazing story and george broke the story and, you know, went through the insanity of that opening period where, you know, they were being followed, their phones were being tapped, um, and we know, which is true. They were, you know, both George and Bob had people come to them at different times and say, I was involved in monitoring you and, and proved it to them. So, um, you know, look, it's a fascinating story. What, where we are now in the lens of 30 years, yeah, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a new day. Bob has opened up. And these are extensive, long-formed, multi-camera interviews over durational periods. I mean, I will go, you know, live with Bob for a week at a time on, on two separate occasions now for nine days. And to have access to his daily life, to everybody closest to him, to pry open these details, to see who he is as an individual to person. So I think that is the key. The key to dismissing an uncomfortable idea is dehumanizing the messenger. And it's just so easy to, to do. I mean, Bob makes it easy to do, as George reported in his first episodes. You know, here's a guy, he runs brothels, has a pirate flag on his house, and, um, you know, runs explosive shows. I mean, the guy's just looking to be discredited. But giving people a personal look and an in-depth, extensive look at who Bob Lazar is as a person makes it a little bit more difficult to just dismiss when he tells you something. We might not be able to prove any more today than we were before on, on, on his story and what's going on. Although there have been things that, that have, you know, clarified over that 30 years, and I, I will touch on them. But, uh, yeah, it's a very interesting time to look at the story of Bob Lazar through the lens of 30 years and all the people involved, including, you know, George and Bob's friends and even Bob's family. It's, it's, a, it's an interesting time. That's what the movie is. Wish me luck. I'm going to complete it because the premiere <laughs> is on December 3rd, which is a Monday. 
and that's locked in. So I better get it done. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why, why why you're sequestered right now. You told me. I will, yeah, I mean, I have enough for a dozen movies, but it's putting it together and the the the, the parts of my footage together in in a way that I think is most compelling for the biggest audience for this first installment. Uh-huh. I have, Let me tell you this, uh, Greg. Oh, go ahead, please. I, I think Jeremy is the perfect person to tell this story, uh, to dive back into it. Um, you know, after, for the first uh, 15 years or so of dealing with the Lazar story, Area 51, and which became so big and went all over the world, it was it seemed important to me that people believed that it was true. And so we kept working at it and working at it and doing updates and looking for more information and validity. And I defended Bob pretty much all over the place uh, and and tried to uh, get to the bottom of it. But I get tired of it. And uh, and I got to the point where I don't care if you believe it or not. And I wasn't going to answer any more questions. And I stopped doing presentations about it or interviews. I didn't want to cover the same ground again. But Jeremy came at it with a new enthusiasm and fresh eyes and um, and really uh, has a has a really comfortable way of, of, uh, of getting into somebody's head. Uh, Bob is a complicated person. He's not an easy person to reach and, and even tougher to get him to trust you. And Jeremy was able to do it. And, mm-hmm. uh, and Bob opened up and he's covering material that we never did. I mean, I did a lot of stories with Bob, but it was always the nuts and bolts of what did you see and, and what did the report say and uh, how did you get to the base and all that stuff. Uh, but uh, seeing Lazar in his natural element uh, when his guard is down and have him tell those stories again, I think it's going to be really powerful to, to hear it uh, 30 years later. Um, I, I, I know people have made up their minds about Bob. That's OK. Um, I, I think even some of the folks who have written it off will get a, will learn a lot from this. I want to see the film because I want it to disabuse me of the idea that I have right now that Lazar, that Bob Lazar was basically shown these things, but there's no way to tell if you know the, the background of this if what he was shown and what he saw represented what we thought it was. Now I've talked to you about this a little bit, and you said after talking to him for a while, um, you don't know if that's true or not, but you think he's sincere about what he said. Yeah, I'll go a step further. Uh, which is that, I mean, I've directly said, look, this is a, a criticism people have of your ultimate story, which is that, you know, you were fooled. You know, you were shown a stage mm-hmm. of staged stuff and, and you were part of disinformation and they were pretending they had a giant flying saucer and pretending <laughs> they had a gravity wave amplifier. And he just, he just thought that was great. He thought that was a riot. He's like, honestly, do you think it's that easy to fool me? Do you think <laughs> that the things I'm describing to you are something that can be done through inducing drugs into my brain or just, you know, sleight of hand. He's like, you can't fake these things. I physically saw them. I physically dealt with them. And look, it's fine. The reason you believe that and you have to tell yourself that is because the possibility that I'm telling the truth is really uncomfortable to you. And you know what? I'm okay with that. I never asked you to believe me. I just felt it was my duty to tell you what happened to me. I'm just reporting the news. You fit that into what that, that's your problem. You don't mm-hmm. believe me. It's not my problem. Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of where he comes from. And I think it's very telling. And I look, honestly, I think it's very telling that you have somebody explaining to you something 30 years later 
and I'm constantly trying to catch him in a lie or, or something disingenuous. And all I'm finding is that there's uh, layers and layers of consistency and things that pop up like, holy fuck, he might be telling the truth. <laughs> and that just keeps happening. So, look, I again, I'm kind of where Jordan's. I really don't care. My documentary, I'm not trying to. This is going to be really disappointing to a lot of people. I am not fucking trying to prove anything to you. I am not trying to prove the Bob Lazar story. What I'm trying to do is what I do as a filmmaker. I'm trying to show you who Bob Lazar is. I want you to make up your own determination. Sure, there are some cool things that happened from the discovery of this film. You know, I found the guy, got him on the phone after 30 years and him kind of dodging George, the guy that did the security clearance for Bob. Um, Bob has always talked about this hand scanner. Well, sure enough, there's something I'm going to reveal in the movie about that. There are some really cool, specific things that I uncover in the film, sure. But ultimately, that's not my goal. My goal is to show you who Bob is in his daily life, to show you the people around him. You know, it says something. When, when your wife of 18 plus years who slept next to you every night, when she believes you, when your mom believes you, when your friends believe you, when the people closest to you who know your character describe you as being one of the most honest to a fault people they know, and that if you know Bob, you'll know the true story of UFOs because you won't have to question it because you know who Bob is. And you'll know if he would even bother wasting his time lying to you. And the answer is no. <laughs> You're saying this. It sounds like a like an Errol Morris treatment where they go in. They they don't. He doesn't really care about the person's story as much as what their their role in that story was. Precisely. A lot of people are going to be very disappointed. And, and <laughs> hey, I'm trying to sell my movie here. <laughs> you know, people will be disappointed. No, 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 I mean, like, they're, they're not going to be. They're going to eat it up. But it, it is. It's a different type of storytelling. I'm not sitting here giving you a timeline and telling you why you should believe Bob. Not fucking at all. Mm -hmm. it, it's going to light a fuse is what my film's going to do. And I think there's a lot more to learn by looking somebody in the eye through a lens and hearing what they have to say and making that judgment based upon their little micro expressions and everything you know about the nature of reality and making that determination for yourself. So I think the movie is going to be extremely well accepted mm -hmm. once people can accept what the movie is. That is a perfect approach. I mean, that, that would probably it would be the best one. I mean, what are you going to prove? How can you prove any of this? What you have to do is what you just did. Like, let's look at the guy. Let's, let's see what makes him tick which nobody has seen before. Everybody's heard the story, but nobody knows Bob Lazar's story. So that, that sounds like... A exactly. Problem. I guess I'll just have, have to thank you both for putting up with all my uh, silly questions and having a great conversation. Uh, both of you. Thanks. Really appreciate it, Greg. Great to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you. And I'll talk to you both again soon. And, uh, oh, neither of you have been on the show, but one of you pick who gets to do the... Uh, oh, and the film is uh, Hunt for the Skinwalker. It's available probably about when this show drops. Um, we're recording this a little bit beforehand. Yeah. One of you pick an outro song you George, want to George, have. George, George should do it because it's, it's harder to get George than it is me. George should do whatever outro you got going. What am I doing? You, you get to pick the <laughs> outro music. All all guests get to pick oh, the outro okay. music. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, there's a an album that I really like, and a particular ukulele song on that album. Uh, you don't happen to have Ram around there, do you, somewhere? Yes, and as I told you, it's the only song I can play on ukulele myself. <laughs> Again, thank you both so much. Good luck with the film, and um, thanks, thanks for your time and, and your uh, company. Thank you. I mean, yeah, Rent, Hunt for the Skinwalker, right down now, because we want to make more movies. Go get it. Excited to show it to you. 
All right. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks, Rick. All right. Here's Ramon. Thanks, guys. Bye. Somebody 